This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math, in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Mom and Mind, a podcast about maternal mental health, discussing conception, pregnancy, birth, and postpartum. Real stories from moms and family members who have made it from struggling to wellness and interviews with experts and advocates who work for moms and families to get the help they need. This podcast is meant to offer information and awareness and is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. I'm so glad to be back with you today. I took a short break from the podcast to go on a family vacation and reset a little bit. And as you all may know, once you start your vacation, you realize how much you actually needed it. And then once uh, that vacation comes to an end, you realize how much more you want. So I had a little bit of a vacation hangover and still getting back into the swing of things. I am really excited to bring you this episode. I'm speaking with Julie Andrews about Native American mothers and maternal mental health. You know, every time I do an interview, I just get so excited to send it out into the world. I I just so value the discussions that I have with providers and mothers and fathers and parents and advocates. And if you guys have been listening, you know the range of people that we've been able to have on so far. And each conversation just seems so essential and so rich and And this discussion, it falls very much in line with that. Julie Andrews is an enrolled member of the Sikangu Band of the Lakota Nation Rosebud Sioux Tribe. She is an LCSW employed by Riverside San Bernardino County Indian Health Services in the Native American Resource Center. She's been there since 2007, and her work includes the field of clinical mental health, prevention and early intervention, and domestic violence advocacy. The things that we touch on today, just to give you a glimpse, one that I think is really valuable to be aware of is just identification and that some people identify as Native, some as Indigenous, some as Native American, and there are other types of identifications. And what I think is so interesting and valuable to understand is that how people identify themselves does impact the transition into motherhood. And she's going to talk a little bit about how that identification can impact a new mother and how she identifies herself and how she wants her children to identify themselves. So that's a a little bit of a sneak peek into our discussion amongst many, many other things that are really, really valuable. So let's hear from Julie Andrews. Welcome, Julie. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. 
I'm really excited to talk with you as I've met you before when you were able to come and present with a panel at our conference in San Bernardino County. And I just really think that the information that you guys provided at that time and and what you shared with us is so important for, I think, everybody to understand a little bit more about. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can do some of that today. So if you can, just start by telling us about the work that you do. So I work for the Native American Resource Center, which is part of Riverside San Bernardino County Indian Health here in Grand Terrace. And the Native American Resource Center is a outreach uh, prevention and early intervention program for reducing the stigma of mental health. And so this is been a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to look at maternal mental health and and the kind of gaps in services that exist for Native American women here in the Inland Empire. The clinic uh, serves nine different tribes, uh, local tribes, but we also service Native Americans from throughout the United States and, and Hawaii as well. So we have a very diverse group of Native American and Alaskan Native people that we serve. That you serve locally that have come from other places to live here or oh, you yes. serve remotely? Yes. No, they serve, they come, live in this area from reservations in Arizona or mm. Oklahoma, mm-hmm. the Dakotas, all over. Okay, fantastic. So that gives a good kind of background of of what we'll be talking about today in terms of the types of mothers and new mothers and families that you're meeting with. Do you see a wide range of people coming from different tribes and then potentially different cultures within different tribes? So I think it would be really useful as we were talking to kind of first outline a little bit for people the the different types of terms and words that people use to identify themselves in Native culture in in indigenous culture. So if you if you can talk a little bit about that so that there's some context for us and and for the listeners about the different for the the different terms for identity. Right. I think this is a it's a an interesting way especially in the context of historical trauma and the genocidal attempts of the history that the sense of identity of being able to how you identify yourself it's very different throughout generations, I think, mm-hmm. as well as regions. So for some older people to be identified as Indian is part of how we've learned to think of ourselves. And for other people, it is a name that was imposed on us by mm-hmm. settlers and the colonizers. And so they reject it. And so some some of us, the younger generation, comes to identify themselves as indigenous or Native American. And so I think it's really very personal in the way that how, how you how you choose to be identified. Like census-wise, it's American Indian or Alaskan Native mm-hmm. versus... And it's interesting because when we did the, the uh, conference, there was some discussion in our presentation about whether we should be using the term Native American or American Indian mm-hmm. because government identifies us as American Indian and Alaskan Native. So it, it's interesting and that wow. the conversation even amongst ourselves is mm-hmm. is very stimulating and then for, for to, to expect providers and people out there in the community in the community that are servicing the young mothers to have that knowledge is so it's important to just ask to how, how you how you identify yourself right right so in terms of the providers listening and other people who are you know just speaking with someone who doesn't understand the culture to just ask how, how do you identify yourself that seems pretty reasonable and, and 
appropriate and potentially even helping people to feel like I'm thinking specifically of new moms to feel more heard and understood as well. Right. And I think for a lot of people, it it might not even be something that we've given much thought to Mm -hmm. until you start accessing those services that are asking you to identify yourself. Mm. And and a lot of people, especially in the Southern California area, are biracial. And Mm -hmm. so we're looking at a strong which there's a lot of discussion whether it's Latino or Hispanic communities as well. Right. Like how do you, or identifying yourself as indigenous. And so it might be the first time or one of the first times that they're having to look at that idea of identity and how is it going to affect my children and, and especially when it comes to tribal enrollment. Right. So in the, in the context of maternal mental health, do you, I think what I hear you're saying is that they're then really maybe having to think a little bit more about how to identify themselves in the context of their own culture and then how they want their children to identify. Yeah. Wow. Right. So, you know, in in terms of the the perinatal mental health, maternal mental health thing, this, I imagine on some level, is not usually an explicit conversation. Most people are not necessarily having these discussions or around like, well, with providers about how they're going to be identifying themselves or or their children, unless they're in a safe place, like with a therapist, and they're trying to figure that out. Do you hear that? Do you hear these types of discussions in the work that you do with uh, new moms? I do do in that there, especially, I, I believe, different parts of the country are more assimilated, if you will, into the dominant culture than others. And so when we have women coming in to see us for when we're looking at the the four dimensions of wellness, right, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, and we're asking them to reflect on what does their spiritual life look like and does it include traditional Native American practices, a lot of young mothers, it may not be something that they've been exposed to, but it is intrinsically part of who they are, mm. right? That, that looking at spiritual life as it affects your mental health. Right. Those coping skills, whether they're using traditional practices or whether they're using prayer, which is, you know, universal, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. idea of prayer not have been brought up in the traditional ways, but and in some ways there's been such, there is a flip side rejection to that colonization by the Catholic Church. So we may have been raised Catholic, but rejected in understanding the, the reality of what happened with the mission systems. Mm-hmm. So, as a, so as a young mother coming to say, I'm struggling with, you know, having a, a way to deal with my depression or my anxiety in a whole person sense mm-hmm. that may be lacking for them as a coping mechanism. Wow, that seems incredibly important. And it makes me wonder then if you're also seeing new mothers being kind of called or pulled to more traditional ways of coping and healing when they are pregnant or postpartum. This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. 
The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. In, in some instances, I think, yes, they can be. Um, and, and I think it depends on intergenerationally what the presence of those, because for a lot of people, especially those that are probably in the, in the West, the traditional practices are, are gone, are lost. Mm-hmm. The, some of the, the, the knowledge has been lost. There may be a loss of knowledge about traditional use of medicines, about traditional ways of ceremony for the... One of the things that we're finding with the young mothers too is that those those traditional ways of bringing a baby into the world may be lost to them or maybe they're trying to regain them in some ways because that's such a sacred time. So to have those, the knowledge of those ways is maybe missing for them, or maybe there's only pieces of it that they know and not having the elders to go back and and talk to. We're seeing uh, one of our communities is looking at bringing back a community aid ceremony, which is, you know, not perinatal and prenatal, postpartum, but but just a resurgence in bringing Mm -hmm. those ceremonies, including the ones that come along with being a new mother. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's such a period of change and transition and it kind of calls can call a lot of things into question for everybody. But I, I do find that there's this kind of deepening of wanting to understand who you are and like, you know, how to be in the world and how to be a parent or, or how to understand this, bringing a new person into the world. And I imagine that it brings up a lot of stuff for a lot of people and just so it made me curious about spirituality in particular and being more connected to to traditional stuff. But I guess I'm also hearing you say that some of those things are lost on some level or they, there's no one to go to to really understand their own lineage, their own history and traditions. Yes. And not having the experience of watching other family members go through it either. Mm-hmm. So not that that way of those ways being handed down intergenerationally. So there was such a time period where, and it was against a lot of practice, our traditions and our ceremonies. And so that's where a lot of them got lost. That's heartbreaking. It wasn't until 1978 that the Religious Freedom Act was passed. That's not that long ago at all. So, I mean, there's, there's an incredible amount of sadness that 
uh, you know, I am not in the culture and I'm not in the tradition. And, you know, me listening and hearing what you're describing, it's incredibly heartbreaking. But that's that's the lived experience that people have in the culture and in the, I'll just leave it at that, in the culture. And it, I, it just makes me wonder if it's just kind of inherent in experience then, specifically with pregnant and postpartum moms, that, that there's, I don't know how else to say it, but like the trauma of this that's just in, in life. Yeah, I think there's a, there, you know, on the, on the other side too, there are some of our tribes that are really rooted in their culture. And I think it's probably the more remote ones that mm-hmm. have been able to hold on to it mm-hmm. and, and share it. And, and, in, and just like any, any ethnicity, there's that, there are some that re- rejection. It's, it's easier mm-hmm. to be assimilated than to, navigate those complicated ways of identity and being asserting the right to have ceremony and to have Mm -hmm. uh, traditional ways and so it's in some ways it's just easier than having to explain or right or search Mm -hmm. right so I'm thinking then in terms of like a pregnant or postpartum mom who identifies as uh, a native with a native culture an indigenous culture going to see a practitioner who doesn't understand the culture or who is not themselves native, then this this whole kind of background or dynamic is something that that provider may be missing or that the client or the patient might not be bringing in at all in terms of if it is impacting them or not. Right. And I think that to a certain extent, there's a lack of awareness even for the client that it might be impacting how they mm-hmm. the services, but I think you know to a, to a, probably a large a lot of, especially in Southern California where we have Hispanic surnames and so there there might not even be any recognition no significance to me coming into your office as a OBGYN and and telling you that I'm Native American or choosing to I'm just I might just come in you might not know I might not choose to identify mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. Right. So in terms of uh, how these things might be affecting the well-being, the mental well-being of a pregnant or postpartum mom, what are the most kind of, I don't know, common concerns or struggles that you're seeing for, for mothers who are coming into your clinics? I think we we see a lot of mothers who are, for all intents and purposes, single parents. Mm-hmm who may have been raised by single parents and or extended relatives. And so it's not to say that everyone is, but uh, the ones who are coming in with symptoms of anxiety and depression. And so there's that lack of social support, Mm. which may be missing for them, Mm -hmm. even though they may have been raised in an extended family. Mm-hmm. A lot of times there's strange relationships with parents. And so we have young women who really were not parented. And I, and I really believe that it goes back to the fragmentation of the families that resulted from the boarding school experiences. So we see a whole generation of of people who were not parented by parents that mm-hmm. were raised in the boarding schools. And so when we came back to our communities, so just recognizing that there was a disruption in those traditional ways of being, how do we learn how to be a parent? We learn how to be a parent by being parented, by watching our parents, mm-hmm. watching our siblings. And so if that disrupted for a whole generation, what happens when we become parents and we learn how to take care of our children and to parent our children, how to welcome those babies into the world? Mm-hmm. What is that 
experience like and how does it affect our way of seeing, you know, probably one of the number one things that we hear from young women is like, oh, I don't know if I can do this or not. Right. I don't, I don't, what am, what am I going to do if the babies won't stop crying? And, and mm-hmm. so it escalates into fear. And I think it's probably common, you know, uh, a common feature of seeing any woman with postpartum. But I think especially for our young Native American women without the social support and, and those, those ceremonial ways of, of becoming a new mother. Mm-hmm. And in, in terms of just if, if you can give a little bit of historical context to that for people who are listening, you mentioned the boarding schools. So in and around what period of time in, in, in our history here did that happen and how did that happen? When the, as a next step in the extermination policy of the United States regarding Native American people, there was a whole policy of kill the Indian and save the man. And so the idea was to take the children away from the families and put them in a boarding school. Pratt School was one of the first ones, or if it was the first one. And so they forbid children to speak their language. They forbid them to practice their ceremonies. They forbid them to practice their traditional ways, cut off their hair. And so in all in essence, we're getting rid of the Indian part of them and, and putting them in Western European type clothing. So here we have children who were beaten for speaking their language, for for trying to run away to go back home. I always tell people, you know, look at look around you. Uh, do you, if you have a, ch- a child who's five or four, six years old, and think about having what that experience was like to have your ch- those those young children taken away from you, and in some cases never returning home. Mm-hmm. A lot of them died in the boarding school. So if you think about losing your siblings even or your your young children and so what happened to the family as a result of it and what happened to the children it being taken away. Mm-hmm. So coming back into their communities it, when and if they did come back after high school or the 12th, whatever grade it was that they went up to, coming back into their communities being a different person, not losing the language, losing mm-hmm. the ceremonies and the, all of those things that are part of how they identify, right, who they are. Right. So this lasting effect of, of all of these horrible acts and, and trauma is now being played out in the current time with the, as you called it, the fragmentation of families mm-hmm. and the loss of tradition and the loss of things that keep and help people feel grounded and connected and together in a, in a social group. I'm Thank you for, for describing that. I think in order for us to understand someone who's in our office and or coming to us for help, if we don't understand some of these things that aren't necessarily something that's on their mind right now in terms of, you know, today they're thinking about this historical trauma, but that the context of their family history is is potentially what is impacting them now is super duper important. Um, we're missing a lot if we don't understand that. Right. And I think, you know, we're really seeing all over the country Efforts at, at even uh, educating ourselves about the impacts of mm. of the of our history on our ways of being in the world, how we identify ourselves, especially when you look at mental health, mm-hmm. and so and and the Western way of treating mental health, right? We're not mm-hmm. we we have a lot of programs that talk about about being culturally sensitive. We're not looking at the barriers that exist that prevent the 
implementation of those culturally tailored health promotion and healing interventions, we're not looking at how to, and I don't know as much as we, there's different ways of talking about cultural humility versus cultural appropriateness, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, and so when we look at implementing mental health treatment and, and recognizing that a large percentage of our population are, are, are not practicing traditional ways. And I think the, the problem that we have in that is, is not, a, not that it's not part of who we are. It's just not, it's just something that we don't know about yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And not everyone is interested in, in returning to traditional values and practices, but it's part of who we are as indigenous Native American Indian people. Mm-hmm. Right. And so when we look at implementing, it's important to ask the questions of the people that you're serving. Right. And I'm talking about in a larger sense, not specifically just in maternal mental health, but sure. in a larger sense, when we're developing programs that we're looking at that spiritual aspect of mental health. Right. Absolutely. You you mentioned before that a common stressor that you see is single parenthood. What are the other things that you're hearing, even in terms of, you know, maybe somebody went to a provider who didn't understand them? Are there any common cultural d- disparities or or issues around mistreatment during pregnancy, birth or postpartum specifically connected to having a being Native identified? I think one of the things, and, and this is something that we talked about briefly in the, the postpartum conference that we participated in, was that, that there is a, uh, that there are misconceptions about what it means to be Native American and that access to services, right? So mm-hmm. that, that there are, uh, that we're all casino Indians or that we all get per capita money or everything is free for us and, and that's really not true. Uh, probably a, a big percentage of the Native American community that we serve are what are called direct care clients, which means that they are accessing funding sources such as Medi-Cal. And so there, it's not, there's no insurance. There's no Indian insurance. It's the Indian health clinic exists that provides services, but we're, as, as most uh, agencies are, the payer of last resort. And so we utilize other funding sources. And so... There's, I worked with a provider before, a mental health provider, and it, it wasn't a maternal mental health provider, but it was like, well, they're Indian. They, they let, let the Indians pay for it. That wow. Was, that was her, her position. It was like, oh, oh my gosh. It doesn't work that way, and especially not for everyone. Some of our, our tribes do have their own health insurance. They buy plans, but not all Native Americans, and especially Native Americans who are coming from out of state. So their resources are limited. Our clinic does not provide pregnancy services. So once there is a, a patient is, is found to be pregnant, then she's referred out to outside resources. Mm-hmm. So depending on what kind of provider she's chosen, the misconception being, oh, well, they they're, they have a lot of resources available to them. I think one of the things about the Indian Health Clinic is that we do provide a good supportive services. I mean, we have a lot of programs available to help support new moms. Mm. Benefits that we found in home supportive services are oh, great. Um, our Aki program, which is also called our spirit program. And then we have our parent partners through Native Challenge that provide support to the mom and the newborns and up until I believe it's till four years of age. And that's so, amazing. So supportive services uh, and, and public health nurses that, that interact with families and can take them to appointments. So we do provide this this support 
but it's also not something that they're going to, that they're going to get out there. So mm-hmm. I think the trend from our clinic to, to the OBGYN services out there, there's, it, I think it's a benefit, but it's also a deficit because they're not going to get those kind of support services out there that they're used to getting with the clinic, which makes it difficult for them mm-hmm. to engage with those peers. So that's specifically during pregnancy, they are seeking, uh, getting support outside of the support of your clinic. Are they, are they coming back and, and telling you any stories of their experiences and that are specifically related to identity? I, well, I think maybe not to identity, but to misconceptions. Uh-huh. So we had a, a young woman tell us that she making assumption about her use of alcohol. So what's and, and the... how that affects her her health? And she and she was you know asserting that she doesn't drink, and and so there's 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 all kinds of misconceptions about their the use of alcohol and the high rate of alcoholism. And it's not to say that there is not a high rate of alcoholism, but we can't make assumptions that it's all people. Like we wouldn't do that to anyone else right? in providing services. We wouldn't make that conception, but that's a bias that people have or a misunderstanding, if you will. So people... Maybe uh, the... Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Oh, I'm just, you know, so that this, you said the the misconception then is that Native Americans, all of them drink or drink too much and and then putting that pressure on this particular mom. And then, I mean, I'm just thinking of her situation. She's in a position to have to defend herself against this idea that is misinformed and at base and and incredibly rude and biased in, in other ways. Yes, and frustrating, <laughs> and frustrating right, yeah. for this. For this and and what what would what would anyone's initial reaction be to something like that? Like right. not wanting to learn, right? And one of the things that we're seeing is a, is a, I was talking to somebody the other day, and she and she told me that there was some kind of problem with her insurance with her IHP or something like that, and so she ended up not getting any prenatal care for the last three months of her pregnancy. Wow. They they refused to see her. I don't know what happened, but, but so when, if things happen that disrupt service uh, in a lot of, a lot of times, and we see this across socioeconomic racial groups where prenatal care is, is not sought in the first, first or second trimester. Mm-hmm. It's not until it gets, I don't, I don't think it's unique to, to Native American women accessing, maybe perhaps not accessing the WIC services until mm-hmm. late in in pregnancy. Right. Well, I mean, that all of these barriers can affect and start to affect or at least build up the amount of stress that any mom is having. So in terms of when, when moms are coming back to you in, in the postpartum period, you said there's quite a few supports and and I'm curious, too, about just supportive practices in general. What do you find are the strengths that you're seeing within the community, within these moms, within the culture that are that are supportive and helpful for them in their transition into parenthood? I believe that be, because we have strong Native American women who are working within the system of care here, that there is uh, an extended family-type kind of service provided, special interests and and outreach to those young women to be able to provide what might be missing for them in their own families as far as support and encouragement. And not to say that that's true for all all young mothers. Of course, I don't want to make generalizations about any of what we're talking about as being mm-hmm. true for all Native American women. But 
but that that we've created this system of uh, between our community health representatives who provide uh, transportation to appointments for young mothers and their children and the public health nurses who come out and do supportive care for the infant care and, and our lactation nurses and our WIC nutritionists that are providing those supportive services to the young mothers that, that we create that extended family for them. Mm-hmm. And I think it, not everyone takes advantage of it, mm-hmm. and but it's there. And so the more people that we're able to introduce to those services, and I think that's one of the, the hopes that we had for that conference was to to let people in, that are providers in the communities know that we have these these programs available and that if we continue communication and referrals, then they'll be sent back. These are the programs that are available to you at Indian Health Services and these are the programs that might be helpful to you as a young mother and provide support. So getting those referrals back into our system of care. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of TILT is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the TILT Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist, and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. I also think that as a result of the conference that we had, that we've recognized the real need for us to have uh, that supportive postpartum identification and referral to mental health services because mm-hmm. we, we, we're we here, we have a behavioral health services department and we do provide counseling, but we're not getting the referrals. And so we're looking at our WIC and nutrition departments, at our, our medical department and our uh, those supportive programs that I discussed as being to come together and make sure that we have those services available for our young mothers. Oh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. And you're already doing so much to support them in so many other ways. This sounds like a really great addition and maybe even necessary from from what you're seeing out there. So you were saying before, and what I'd like to to highlight again, as we talked about, is that 
you know, we're not speaking and you're not specifically speaking of all Native people. You're talking about what you're seeing in your area and with the people who come into your clinic. So in, in terms of what you're seeing and who you're meeting with, what have you seen as the feelings about mental health, maybe specifically around postpartum depression or something like that, and then treatments such as medications and those sorts of things? I think there's a, there is a hesitancy to access counseling services. And so we've made a real effort in within our Native American Resource Center at, at trying to promote concepts of wellness as opposed to mental illness. We, we do talk about, like I said earlier, about those four dimensions of wellness within the context of a medi- of the medicine wheel, which talks about four different directions, four different life stages. It's different for every, every culture, every tribe, every, they're all different. So when we're talking about Native Americans in a general way, we're not speaking for all Native Americans. Mm-hmm. We're recognizing that different regions and different tribes interpret things differently. Right. And so, when when we are looking at the accessing services coming into our our clinic, we're looking at focusing on on concepts of wellness and focusing on strengths of communities and families and individuals. I think there's a, a hesitancy regarding medication. So if a, a new mom might be better served by taking medication, there might be a family history of perhaps a bias against medication. You know, based on our our history with traditional governmental services, there's there there is a, a distrust in those kinds mm. of services that are being provided. But we work really hard at trying to focus primarily on coping skills and identifying the strengths that are that an individual has within her own family, being able to help support her to do as best as she can be. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, you know, uh, we leave that decision up to the, the mom, of course, whether or not she wants it. Because there's so many things that are affected by whether having to take medication, but whether they can continue to breastfeed or some ways maybe simply rejecting the whole idea in the first place. So we see women struggling when they might not necessarily need to based on the kind of um, preconceived notions about what we do here at Behavioral Health. Right. So you have like multiple layers of um, kind of stigma plus historical, if I can say historical trauma and just the, the general outlook on mental health support is for the most part still pretty negative just yeah. in general. Right. But that using, it sounds like you guys are really focused on using a strengths based and wellness approach is beneficial. Yeah. I think so. And and like I said, we're really working at trying to implement something that's going to be a you know, of use to our young mothers, something that's gonna meet their needs mm. for time and for what's important for them. Yeah, this is such important and useful information and perspective for I think all of us to understand. Well, thank you for for all of this. It's great and useful information for all of us to know. And I know that there's so much more for us to know and to really understand about about any culture, but but very specifically in terms of you know, the conversations I'm having here on this podcast, I'm hopeful to you know have more conversations about this and other perspectives. And as you said, you know we're we're not necessarily touching on every tribe and every cultural experience. I think it would be great to get a sense if you have a sense of what are the the just overall cultural strengths and things that are supportive for pregnant and postpartum mothers. Things that do offer them support and strength and hope through the period of time where they may be struggling. I think 
across the country. We are really, as an organization, as a behavioral health organization, as Indian Health Services, that we really are looking back to our cultural ways of being and traditions as a source of strength and resiliency Mm. and recognizing, like I said earlier, that it is part of who we are, even if it's something that's been sleeping, if it's something that's been kind of, you know, in the background, but Mm -hmm. it's part of who we are and a part of how we've survived all these years. And I think that that I I witnessed, I don't know if you would call it a blessing of a young, of a newborn baby not too long ago at a, at a cultural event. And it was just, it was just beautiful to see this Mm -hmm. young family being, being prayed over, being given to, not given to the family, but Mm -hmm. presented, represented to the family in the context of this sacred life, right? This responsibility, this connection that this child is, is connected to its ancestors that came before. Mm -hmm and the ones that are coming after. So being able to provide that context of of that parental responsibility and connection Mm -hmm. to this young family. And and it's a a beautiful thing to be able to use those uh, traditional ways of being. And and so I've seen a a real resurgence and discovery and celebration of that concept of family, which because of the the, our history has been disjointed and fragmented and and so really you know there's there's a lot of hope I think mm. with our young people and and looking to our our traditional ways and and concepts of what that means to be there's a term that's used called all my relations and with it carries that sense of responsibility of being connected to each other mm. I think it's one that we sometimes use lightly, but which carries a great deal of meaning and that we're connected to each other and we're connected to the earth and and that there's responsibility that goes along with that. And so I think it's a a wonderful example of things that are happening all over the country with remembering the ways of being and bringing those those into our parenting and to our our motherhood, right? That that Mm -hmm. sacred time of life giving, which is you know, very, a very special time, right? And even after mm-hmm. childbirth, right, it's a very special time in that connection with that new spirit. And so it's, it's hopeful and it's beautiful and it's, it's, um, it's a good thing. Yeah, it sure is. Oh, I was just listening to you. I just am almost tearing up at the thought of just, just how beautiful that is and that connectedness and, and being connected to something that feels so rooted and, uh, old, if you know what I mean, just uh, how how beautiful that really is. I thank you for sharing that. Thank you for coming on and sharing with us this information and your experience and, and what you're seeing. And I, I'm hopeful that this information is helpful for other people who are listening too. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you again, Julie, for coming on with us and giving us all of this rich background and important history to understand. I really, really feel that we can try and understand a mother without the context of her history or her cultural history. But when you can understand the depth of experience that not only the mother has faced, but the family has faced and and how that all may be impacting her in current time, we really just have a much deeper and more valuable understanding of one, the person who's with us, two, how to support them. And three, like Julie said, We can ask, we can ask people how they identify themselves, what their healing practices are, 
how they experience the world and be able to support them in a way that is more beneficial. And I'm sure for moms who are listening, you know, just having somebody be curious about your experience and wanting to understand what is going on for you within the context of your life, how much more beneficial that feels and how much easier it might be to be able to connect and connect with each other. So if you guys are interested in connecting with the Riverside San Bernardino County Indian Health, go to www.rsbcihi.org or on their Facebook page at Native RC. I'll have all of this information up for you in the show notes. And if you head over to their website, you can also find their address and phone number to contact them directly in that way. If you haven't yet joined us on the Mom and Mind Facebook Connection group, please head on over there and check it out. We are growing and the hope is for that group to be a place where we can have continue the discussions about the podcast episodes, connect with each other, get support from each other and really continue to deepen our understanding of perinatal mental health, as well as crush some stigma along the way. That is a huge goal. The sooner we can get rid of the idea that we're not supposed to get help, we should be able to figure things out, something's wrong with me, and people are going to judge me for that, the better off we'll all be. So come on over and join us there. I so appreciate you guys listening to this episode and this podcast. If you know of anybody who would appreciate this episode or the podcast, please do share and send this over to them. If you haven't yet subscribed on iTunes, head over there, click subscribe, and then you'll get all the episodes automatically downloaded and you can pick and choose which ones you're able to listen to. All right, guys, until next time. Thank you for joining us today. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, help is available. Please look for resources for help at momandmind.com. Also, please subscribe and share this podcast. Together, we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Thank you for being a part of the Mom and Mind community. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness, and I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.